Hey there designers, welcome to Huddle, the show where we dive deep into the world of UX and help you take your skills to the next level. So designers, we have an extra special treat for you today. We have Wes Shepard, who is a personal friend of the show, a threat landscape strategist and data privacy advocate. He will be helping us explore how we can integrate cybersecurity into our UX design processes. But before we jump into that, Wes, I was hoping that you can kind of break down for our viewers who might be new to the world of cybersecurity and threat and risk, what sort of things you're involved with and what that looks like at and really hoping that you can keep it at a basic level for those who might know absolutely nothing. I know that a lot of us are really new to this conversation. And so if you can keep it in as simple and plain language, and we'll make sure to keep you honest to that throughout uh, a little introduction here. You know, I'm going to absolutely do my best on that. Uh, the good news is the security is actually fundamentally very simple. It's just been made complicated by a lot, a lot of hands. Uh, both good and bad. Um, I, for those who maybe can't see on camera, I actually have a, like a visual aid here. Um, this is actually what's called the cybersecurity domains, and this is more like a business map. So first thing I'm going to talk about the boring stuff, which is business, 30 seconds or less, and then we're going to talk about the risk, which is actually, frankly, a lot more interesting. But the short version is, is that when someone's in your building and they're doing security, the odds are you just kind of put in one group. Problem is you have different types. You have application security, you have infrastructure security, you have physical security, then you actually have like the actual like people who are responsible for the policies, people responsible for the governance. And it takes at least a good handful of people to do security right. That's the bad news. Um, this is more this this thing right here is mostly just a very, very quick show of security architecture in the top left corner. This is going to be referencing things like design that makes sense. This is going to be a feature that I think hopefully calls back to UX a lot. Uh, then down here in the bottom corner, security operations. This is the actual responders to security. These are not the same people. You do not want your architect saving your building. They're too slow. They're not professionals. And then you have people. Then you have in the bottom left, bottom right corner, you have governance. These are the people responsible for making sure that that the good rules are being followed in the good way. Um, and the thing about that that's interesting is that basically the architect is not necessarily going to know that. And the operations person is not going to know anything about the architecture per se or the regulations. So there's just so much to cover. And the problem with this is then going to come back down to the depth of it. So you wind up needing a specialist in every subject a little bit to get it done correctly, which is why we have threats. Now, that is more interesting. That's substantially less, less boring. Um, what I do as a threat landscape strategist is I go out and I go to these dark corners, both physical and physical and virtual, and I talk to these people who are bad guys. I talk to these people who are good guys stopping bad guys, and I listen carefully in these rooms, and I learn the patterns of behavior on how they approach these things, how they approach secure architecture, how the bad guys get around good instant response. And um, I use that to then, in my role, to identify proper patterns the companies can follow and avoid these problems. And so that's and so my role is a little weird. Most people don't talk to these people directly, right? Um, but it is 
honestly the only thing that keeps me keeps me awake in my job because um as a hacker this is something that the finding a corporate job is not something that we're all necessarily accustomed to i find that very interesting because we talk a lot about the mental models that we employ and build into like a basic product that's to make something familiar and so you're exploring the mental model of somebody that is a bad actor yes so that is what makes you good at your job is you both have to play the role of somebody committing a crime and preventing a crime and i find that is that something like that's similar to like being a detective oh very similar actually um i think it was i actually saw i think it was a there's a podcast i was listening to i forget which one they were likening um cybersecurity to journalism which i thought was actually fascinating she basically that that um Journalism comes in two flavors that actually adds value. Everything else is just everything else is just gossip. But in journalism that has value either has analysis or it has context. It either provides depth or provide or provides understanding. Um, and so in that sense, often being, both. Often both. Good journalists do both. But you know, get you a journalist who can do both. That's the trick, right? And so good good um, security professionals are capable, or at least should be capable, of identifying both halves of the defense and offense to really develop a proper understanding of what steps to take. Um, but it comes back to the mind, always as it always does, because at the end of the day, someone's going to click something they shouldn't, or someone's going to access something, or some, or the bad guy's going to think about how someone's going to click and up exploit that instead. Right. You just spoke to an interesting thing there, and I think that just to back it up a little bit, um, a lot of our viewers are probably wondering why exactly are we having this discussion on cybersecurity and how does this apply in the landscape of UX design? Um, you just said, you, you touched on something interesting there. You said someone's going to click it, that, that someone being a user. If there's, vulnerable, if there's vulnerabilities present within a design, um, someone is going to find those vulnerabilities and someone is going to enhance those vulnerabilities by by just going about their normal routine in that system. So just to back it up, I guess, how does how do we as designers think about cybersecurity during the design process? Why is this, I guess, relevant for us to consider during our design process? That's a really good question. And I think the thing that gets overlooked a lot is the role of trust within UX. Is that that's, it's, it's not commonly thought of, at least for those who are, don't do UX. I'm sure it's very common in the UX circles. What is the, tr what is the trust you're trying to build in that, in that experience, right? You're trying to establish, you click this, this is the right path. You don't click this, this is the wrong path, for example. Just click, just click paths as one example, right? So establishing trust is exactly what the bad guys do too. Um, now keep in mind, you know, user experience, UX designers are not responsible for making the website secure. That's the bad news and the good news. Someone's going to have to actually make sure the website's code is clean, so, so that the infrastructure is locked down correctly. The network is not is not open. Assuming somewhat, but I've known situations, and I know the threat actors that the first thing they do when they want to disrupt a company is they deface the website. And when they deface the website, what I'm saying is they change the code itself of the website to reflect a different click path. And then they build a different path upon that to their own malicious purpose, be it credential harvesting, business email compromise, a dozen different things. So, um, Can you give us a, like a kind of a tangible example of tangible that? Tangible example. Uh, well, I can't talk about too many, unfortunately, because I'm not permitted. But uh, one particular example, I think it was... Um, there was a there was a, it was a bank in Belgium, if I remember correctly, and they were financing financing 
financing a group that was related to that was turned out to be related to Kurdish rebels. Um, this was actually like this was kind of a scandal at the time. I forget when and where, but it was some time ago. And in response to that, hacktivists went to the went to the bank and defaced the website with like you know all the things you would expect to find you know in a in a hacktivist defacement, which is kind of things like this: we are terrible people, we steal people's money, we we support we support rebellions where they don't belong. Um, and then you could, and then if you want to log in, you click the login page, and it went to, and it went to a Chinese credential harvesting page. They actually used someone else's attack, just because they felt, just because they thought it was fun. So um, it went kind of deeper than that, kind of more nuanced. But the short version from that experience was that um, if you expose, if if your if your user experience produces a certain level of trust, people will follow that trust path, even if it's actually already in a risky space, like the website is defaced. You know, why would you interact with a website that's been defaced? You know, it's clearly been hacked, but there's the login button still worked. It just got redirected. I mean, I can think of a million websites or apps or, or things that we, we still do continue to mm. interact with on a daily basis that have had data leaks. I know that especially during over the course of the pandemic, I know there was like a story every week, data breach here, data breach there. Ransomware. Ransomware. Yeah, I guess knowing that it's so prevalent, I guess, do you, can you, is there anything that you can point to during the design process that we might yes. be doing that is not, like, stopping these? That's a good point. Um, I would say if you were going to look at this, again, from the, from the position of trust, which is, again, what you're building with your, with your user in this context, is the goal is to the goal is that you want them to follow the path of your design, and so the path of your design ideally should follow a path that secures them and shapes their behavior. I mean, as a, as a threat actor, a former threat actor myself, um, my job was to shape behavior to suit my needs. I wanted to steal this money. I wanted to do this thing over there. I didn't do these things. Let's say I didn't, but let's say for argument's sake, if I wanted to, that's how I would go about it. Um, with the user experience design process. You want to make sure that the, you know, again, this is speaking from the security perspective, your mileage may vary, but in a perfect world, uh, that user goes through a way that makes them more secure and exposes you as a company less. Give an example of the latter would be, um, are you familiar with something called SQL injection? Maybe not. No. Not even a little bit. Good. Okay. Super quick version of this is that if you went to some websites and you put in uh, a... Um, and a single quote, a double quote, but just not not both of them, just one of them, and see what happens. There's a reasonable chance if they've done a poor job of managing their database, that their website will will like garbage out, garbage in process. You'll just be seeing like random code as it resolves from the login page because what it's doing is it's doing a database dump instead. Um, that is a really unfortunately very common thing to find. But if you add form validation to that. In, you know, instead of just leaving it just like, oh, anything you put in is fine, you put form validation into that, into that field, now it reads that as an incorrect answer, as instead of a try and find out answer. Very interesting. And doing that would actually secure the company, not just the user. I know during my experience, my limited experience with working with developers, form validation is something that takes them quite a substantial more amount of time to integrate into the, into the um, overall design. I guess, how do we as designers know 
when it is correct to advocate for that what is usually a substantially larger amount of investment into the original design and into the original development process. I get how do we know first when to advocate for that and then how to advocate for that? That is another really good question. Um, no good answers there, I'm sorry to say. Um, the an- I mean, the answer is largely built around phone a friend, which is you know not a good answer. But the reality is, is that there's only so much that a person who isn't a specialist can really advocate for. Um, but what I can say is that um, security is one of those situations, in a company especially, that it is really much a conversation. As much as it may hurt my soul to compromise and say, no, we're not getting that done because it's a pain, in the, it's a, it's a pain to do, um, there are compromises you have to meet because the business, you have, they have to pay to keep the website running so that we can all do our jobs and try harder again. So a certain amount of compromise is just going to be inherent to the process, which is unfortunate. But the reason why security is a conversation, not just a job, is because we need people from UX, from, from infrastructure, from sales and marketing to actually come and talk to security and, or, and, and ask questions like you're asking here. I had a question. So yeah. on that subject of like that, when you start involving a security expert, mm. um, and I guess like Meg, you're kind of asking like, how do we have that conversation? At what point of the development of like a new product, a new feature, do you feel as an expert, mm. it is most um, logical to involve you in that conversation? That is a really interesting perspective to ask upon because this is a contention within security. Because uh, okay. right now there's something, uh, there's the, there's the there's a it's not a buzzword anymore. It's it's too old to be a buzzword. But it's called DevOps, right? Or DevSecOps. Yep. We've all heard mm-hmm. these words. Yeah, we all hate these words. But this word was this word had meaning. The idea is that you take security and you move it as far into the development process as you possibly can. Problem when you do that. Problem with security, as is with all. I mean, as you can see by that chart I showed you, the security is everywhere, right? Every point security hits, it slows the process. It just does. It's in the nature of security. <clears throat> Problem with that is that if you move, move development all the way into the into the into the beginning steps of development, you develop nothing. <laughs> right, <laughs> and that's the short version, right? So, the way DevOps works when it works well is to build automated processes is to establish these are the these are the guide rails that you literally as a developer are incapable of doing because security said no early and you just work around it there's no conversation there's no interaction it's just like oh that's not a thing we can do move on um very much shaping the user experience of development oddly enough very interesting yeah so as i understand what you're saying is in corporations companies however you want to refer to Organizations, organizations that are like very siloed that's mm. when it's least effective very you want to be part of that development process early mm. so that you can set up those guardrails and those constraints but reasonably reasonably yeah yes so okay. you're kind of saying like the safest thing is just to stay home and not do anything oh very much but very much the best the safest computer is the one that's off right yes. uh and even then i'm sure there's uh workarounds there are actually yeah yeah um yeah there are. so when it comes to developing these ideas, like let's say hypothetical, we're part of a startup, okay, and there's no budget for security initially. Oh, I know this one. Go on, tell me. So, you know, hiring a full-time security expert is probably cost prohibitive, right? Um, what are some of the tools or resources we can employ as designers to shape 
you know, um, a product early to avoid some of the work later. Because, mm. you know, let's continue on the hypothetical tangent. The, the product or the company becomes successful, it's viable, you get, you know, capital, and then it starts to become a real thing and it's a business. And then you get hired and then you're like, oh my God, this is a mess. Yeah. How do we avoid that? Well, I mean, and like just to add to that, it's like, it can cost the company quite a bit of money and users when there is a huge breach like that. Yeah. Um, especially for a startup, it could be possibly detrimental if they lose the trust of their users for good. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, to Cameron's point, how do we, if we don't have the budget or we can't advocate for the budget to bring in a specialist how do we i guess go about that see that's i think the maybe the maybe the superpower of ux in this particular circumstance is that no one's going to blame you when it's when it breaches no one's going to blame you at all they're not even going to think of ux as part of this equation odds are there's a piece of that there's a piece of the exploit or a piece of the security incident that ux was responsible for but it's all going to fall in the hands of the infrastructure people and the application people it's not going to fall in the hands of UX to take any of the blame, which is, you know, fortunate, right? But therein lies almost the secret superpower of it. You get to be, you basically get to see it all happen and you get to kind of have an eye on it, right? Um, so in terms of like how you would begin that process from security, from the design perspective, um, this is an untapped resource in the industry. I think that's, I mean, I feel strongly about this. I've actually been trying to raise the conversation on the subject of we need to better better UX awareness of security because of this. Everything's built on the idea of, you know, the OWASP top 10, which is the application top 10 most common things. SQL injection is one of those top 10, for example. Uh, they're talking about the CIS baselines for AWS. It's like, that's, again, more acronyms. Doesn't matter now. But um, actually, like, where to begin? I would start with that just asking questions of leadership, like who is responsible for making sure that we're not making mistakes on, on, on security? Yeah. And just, just raise the questions, just be nosy about it. Because the best part about it is because you're in UX, you get to ask lots of questions. Right. You get to like be the ear, ear against the wall on literally every part, of the, every part of the application development process because you have to be involved in every part of the application development process to a point even the back end to some degree. So you get to be the silent watchdogs and get to like ask the awkward questions. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. Like it is our job to advocate for the bad actors as well as mm -hmm. the users we're designing for. Mm -hmm. And so what you're suggesting is, is kind of, as I understand it, to just bring up that question, leave it in the room and step back and oh, say, yeah. this is someone else's job, but I'm thinking about it. Yes. I think that's a very good point. And I think that that is our job when we're especially referring to like product development. That's a personal interest of mine. I, I you know, I don't feel like I have such strong, um, you know, visual design senses and skills. Um, so I feel like that's what I'm going to lean on is more how I develop and shape a company or a product. Um, so I guess what you're saying is, you know, you can't plan for everything. You're definitely not going to be successful if you think about it like that. Um, but bringing that up early, I think, is a very good point. And I think that is really all you can do. Sadly, yes. But I think there's a very interesting overlap between hackers and UX designers. And mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting to bring this up just on the subject, which is um, without going into the hacker manifesto, because frankly, that's not why everyone's here. Um, <clears throat> the, 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 things that, the things that make a hacker a hacker, and keep in mind, hacker is not a bad word. It's just a word. Um, 
seeking puzzles and liking novelty. I don't think anyone in this room dislikes puzzles. I don't think anyone in this room dislikes novelty. I think everyone who works in UX seeks novelty just all the time. Because I that's... think you also didn't mention empathy, and I think that that is the biggest overlap because it's for you to be successful at your job, you need to also be able to put yourself in the minds of these actors yes. who would, whether it's good or bad, you, you have to have empathy for them to be able to understand why they would be doing this and yes. also how they would be going about that. Very good point. Indeed, indeed. And so I think the interesting part about that overlap is that if you share a mind space, then you actually have, you're basically nine-tenths of the way already to understanding what could be done accidentally or on purpose. Because honestly, bad UX can also lead to uh, accidental mistakes, accidental shit, accidental stuff, pardon my language. Could it be valuable then during the process to be essentially crafting out a persona of, of who the bad actor could be as well? Yes. Absolutely. Oh, that's a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. Um, if you can raise a user story which is negative as well as positive, that is an extremely helpful thing for security. Thank you for bringing that up. I was going to mention that today. Because, um, yeah, if you because you always write user stories for this or that. If you write a user story for a threat actor, you're doing what's called threat modeling which is actually a technique I do literally with companies every day, which is you map up what could go wrong, what how it could how it be fixed, and how to avoid it. I guess just to then shape the mental model of one of our users, what would one of those user stories look like? Well, let's say for, let's say for argument's sake, um, let's see, I want to, I, I want to log into someone else's website so that I can, so that I can um, pretend to be someone else and gain personal information for the purpose of stealing identity. Like, that would be one user story I can think of. Because mm -hmm. frankly, it's almost never about money. It's always about identity, or it's about uh, further exploit down the road. It's always about the cyber crime syndicates. It's not about the actual cash. Mm -hmm. So it can be just as valuable as, as including those, those kind of like negative user stories so that you can at least get it on the, the radar of the company. And in that way, yes. if you're not able to invest in it right away in the initial building, which I, I think would be kind of foolish to do, from what I'm hearing, you would at least be able to put it on the radar of the company that this is extremely valuable for us to do somewhere down the line. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Um, the, the reality is you're not going to be able to take the mindset of the most creative criminals because they're just going to be smarter than us. They just always are. Um, the, 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 the cream rises to the top, but it's also really heavy. It falls to the bottom of the lake. You know, it goes both directions. It's a very interesting idea. And I think developing those negative user stories, like generally we have like pains and motivations mm -hmm. and those are almost like flipped in your mm -hmm. bad actors. Mm -hmm. Um, their That's pains true. are going to be potentially like they have a, 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 not a disagreement, but, um, like a personal vendetta against like a corporation, mm. much like those bad actors you were describing that were exposing the bad, um, or sorry, the um, the unethical uh, investment in, <laughs> uh, you know, the people that were, you mentioned like Kurdish rebels. For um, example. Yeah. Um, and those are people that we might agree with and find empathy very easily for, um, but maybe the way in which they're going about it and their motivations are the same, but their their outcomes are different. It's it's a very interesting idea, and I think I might suggest that, like, you know, in a corporation, maybe you even just explore some of those bad actors and their motivations just as like a sprint, and then you maybe see where that goes. And it's not necessarily something that you 
explore past that, but then you maybe you have like a deliverable at the end of that sprint and you show some of the um, the product managers or the, you know, the higher ups um, that this is definitely something that we can show that there's going to be this. It's just not a question of if, it's just when. I might even add to that and say that uh, you could actually educate those user stories based on what your company's security leader is worried about. Uh, so for example, if you, a lot of companies, if they're really small, they'll have a consultant, or if they're rather large, they'll have uh, someone who looks like this. And so they're going to have different, and someone's going to be watching out for the risks of the organization. They're going to know who the, who the threat actors are against that organization. So you can ask them, which type of threats are you most worried about? And then that can educate and become a partnership in both directions. So then they, so then they can tell UX teams, we're worried about hacktivism, or we're worried about nation state threats for argument's sake that's fun by the way don't 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 mess with those um but like there's always these different threat profiles that come out of security leadership and you can ask them like straight up it's like what bothers you what keeps you up at night um is it just is it just high school kids messing around because i worked for an education organization that was our biggest threat it's bored high school kids um we didn't have a whole lot of nation state threats going coming our way we were selling textbooks so mm -hmm. So our negative user story in our case would have been something like bored teenager wants to not study <laughs> for the purpose of going home, you know? Yeah, could be as simple as that. Yeah. Something that we explore in another episode are the the very many intersections that there are within the design community and the, the different roles and uh, that we can take on. In the future, do you see there being a specific role and intersection where UX and cybersecurity meet and there, there, there is just a specialist who is the UX of security for? I think we're already there. I think we're already there. I think the reality, I mean, when I, when I build uh, security organizations in the past, I build what are called champions programs. And I think everyone's probably have heard these words before, but maybe if you're less familiar, um, it comes back down to, it's not my job to be a security person. It's my job to listen carefully and get a little extra training on it. Um, to be the eyes and ears of the organization. Um, that education organization I work for, for example, <clears throat> is about 1,300 people in six different countries in Europe. And um, each one of them had a very different culture. There was like, I think, eight different offices and each different office itself was like several hundred years old. It was an old company. And so asking any of them to follow my rules was not gonna happen. Asking any of them to come to me was not gonna happen. So I put the call out for a security champions program. And so I had people from legal and sales and UX as well. And I asked them straight up. It's like, I'm going to train you with a few specific threat landscape realities. This is what it's like on the dark web. This is what we're worried about as an organization. And then you can maybe communicate to me when you find something worrisome or when you have questions or you have a project coming up, you can check in with my team and we can talk, we can work together. So yeah, actually, as far as like a, a specific role in the future, I don't know that's necessarily going to come together that way, but I absolutely see security champions programs becoming more important as we get riskier and, and yeah, the threat landscape's not getting smaller, it's getting bigger. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's been the biggest thing in tech uh, as like an emerging concern field. And are you seeing budgets more greatly allocated to security yes okay. luckily yes and as it and i've seen organizations where it's actually a percentage of the company's product is uh, profit is actually the budget um that is actually really really relieving but only in the, only in the 
private sector. The public sector is the complete opposite. So, but of course, I'm, maybe it's a little presumptuous for me to say, but I'm going to guess that the public sector is where UX goes to die. Um, pretty sure. I think no one's enjoyed a government website in the last, you know, ever. <laughs> so that's a good point. Um, but I mean, just give you an example of like another threat that I think specifically targets user experience is going to be web scraping and bot traffic. These are specifically targeting the user experience by imitating uh, real interactions. And so, a and so a negative user story there is like, I am a bot trying to retrieve, you know, information that, that requires a login. So, but I don't want to log in so that I can sell that information down, tra down the track. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that that'll be top of mind for a lot of people, especially since with a lot of the AI that we're seeing, <laughs> one of the, one of the things that it is incredibly good at is helping bots oh, and, yeah. and creating bots and training bots. So I guess how, um, just to back it up a little bit too, do you know the ROI for companies in investing in security early on? I at Early on, I do not because every company is very different, but I think what it comes down to is the same value proposition as getting fire insurance. Are you going to have a Molotov cocktail thrown through your window? Odds are no unless you're that bank in Belgium, but odds are no. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you, you take this on as a cost avoidance measure more than a return on investment. Some call it a cost savings. It's not cost savings, it's cost avoidance. It's a good way to put it. And I, I think that that's like, you're likening it to insurance. Yes, that's... I hate insurance, but I like insurance. Yeah, you never want to need it, but when you have it, you're glad you do. Exactly, exactly. Much like user experience. Oh yeah, there you go, tie it back. Right? Here we go. So for designers who are hoping to be a little bit more knowledgeable on cybersecurity themselves, is there anything that you could point to that we might want to add to our design toolkit? That's a good question. Um, I would say um, it depends on the type of user experience work you do. If it's just straight up like, you know, pad and pen visual design, um, I would say it's just going to come back down to studying the practices of social engineers. Um, social engineering, for those maybe less familiar, is that it's the, it's the process of getting behaviors out of people that they don't necessarily would, would, would not necessarily do on their own or in a way that would benefit you as, a th as, a, as an engineer yourself. It's also known as being a con, a con artist. It's basically the same thing. Some people are really good at it. I'm working on it. Um, and if you approach... Um, user experience from a social engineering perspective, you can take a social, en social, social engineer's adversarial approach to the process. Like, I would rather this, I'd rather walk this direction than this direction. And how do I get people to walk that direction instead? And so if you take that approach in your mindset, that's actually the threat, the threat actor's mindset. So from a design, visual design perspective, that's maybe a place I would start. Uh, from the toolkit of a technical UX designer, that's where it edges towards application security. That's where it becomes a much more interesting conversation because then we can then there actually is toolkits we can offer on that process. Uh, for example, going to organizations like the like OWASP, O W A S P. They specialize in communicating the worst possible threats to the application landscape today. And you can kind of walk through and say, Oh, that feels like that feels like something I'm probably touching against. You know, things like that. So very interesting. So is this something that all teams need to like eventually employ an expert or 
are there like training courses? Because you you mentioned mm-hmm. your champions, you know, yes. program approach. Yes, is that something that instead of like you were working at this this company or this mm-hmm. corporation, um, and then you basically created advocates within different silos, Correct. which is definitely the best way to do that. I definitely understand that that's the approach there. Thank you. Um, and you know, then you can be more than just yourself advocating by yourself. Um, are there courses that, you know, uh, organizations can like train employees or managers in to kind of accomplish the same goal without you being kind of the, the person that needs to be constantly employed at that that organization? Yeah, that's a, that's another good one. So I think a good, a good security team is going to have an awareness program already. If they don't, that's their loss because that's actually where the rubber meets the road. Um, if you're out there to try to educate yourself, though, there's a few specific areas I might start with. Um, honestly, it's it's this is where it gets very nerdy because at this point you kind of have to actually go outside your comfort zone to really know some of the more technical sides of things. But knowing those technicalities are going to educate your approach as it has mine because, God help me, I am terrible at application security. I am truly horrible. I am mediocre at best. But I know, but I've read it a lot because it helps my job. And so... Just being aware of like these, this is what's going on in the world today. A great, really great resource I know on on. I'm, can I name names by the way? Is it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you can follow a person named Shannon Morse. She goes by the she goes by handle Snubs S N U B S. Um, she is one of the better security advocates I know. Uh, she ru- she's part of the Hack Five organization. She runs the Threat Wire channel on YouTube. Um, that is going to get a kind of like a mid-level technicality to it. So you get to learn what breaches happened this week and you can kind of walk through like why they breached. Um, if you want just general awareness, uh, there's actually a program that was built by somebody, and I forget the organization, but there's a woman by the name of Rachel Toback. That's T-O-B-A-C. Uh, she is an incredible uh, security researcher, a member of the hacker community, and she built an amazing security awareness program that you can actually subscribe to. I forget the organization's name, so I apologize. I don't have that on hand. Um, and then uh, beyond that, it's just being, you know, just following the news really, really well for anything that's breach, hack, leak, or 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 privacy. If you follow those keywords in the news, you're going to start seeing patterns emerge. And just being aware of those patterns is at least a start. Yeah, being plugged into that, I think... It's just generally interesting because you know how the world works a little bit better. But it's, it's uh, terrifying knowledge. I yeah. do approve. I approve lifting, it. Lifting the veil on that whole well, sounds, you know, scary as much as it is <laughs> going to be fun and informative. That's accurate. That's accurate. I, I don't sleep well, but I do know a lot, which is kind of nice. Um, you asked, uh, or you suggested that asking some of the higher ups, like, what keeps you up at night as a security threat? Mm. I'm going to ask the same to you. What keeps you up at night? What? Um, at this point, everyone says ransomware, but they're not wrong. Um, I'd say at this point, it's extremely easy for ransomware to run. It used to be that you would actually like have to actually build a payload and find an exploit and run reconnaissance on an organization and like target like the, the CFO for like, uh, for like a month. And again, I haven't done any of this, just saying, but if you were to, that's a good, that's an approach you would do some years ago. Um, it will take you 10 minutes and, and it you don't actually do anything anymore. You can literally go to the dark web, subscribe to a service, which will do this for you. You point to the target, they get paid, you get paid. It is, the barrier to entry is now down at the possibly the lowest level I've ever seen. It's practically on the open internet. 
And if it gets and and it gets worse when you understand that with ChatGPT three specifically onwards, you now have lat natural language models, which you can then make. Um, you can make those requests even easier. So now you don't even need to speak English to properly craft your attack. Not that you needed to in the first place. Um, so it the barrier to entry on the most profitable thing that ever happened in cybersecurity and cyber risk. Um, you can now just anyone in this room can do it with no skill in five minutes, maybe as much as twenty dollars to start you off. Terrifying. Yeah, that that scares the hell out of me. Um, and and but it, but this is I think comes back to UX again because the way ransomware works is with human compromise. Literally, that's the end of it. It can be a phishing email or it can just be a bad link. Right. Where do you see? the most threat in most organizations these days then is it is it internal is it external that's a good question it depends on the organization it depends on the industry um the three g's are largely the largest targets these days which is uh uh gaming gambling and government so basically the three g's are the are the ones that are usually hit hardest um so if you're one of those organizations it's going to be an external threat it just will you're just constantly hammered um, I, I mean, I don't play Fortnite, but I'm assuming that they have a really good security team. Um, same, uh, so, but if you're in like an organization, which is a, a retail organization or, a, or a manufacturing organization, odds are it's going to be an insider threat and it's almost always going to be an accident. An example I can say is that, um, an organization, which I'm not going to name, uh, recently, um, delivered a beta program for their application. And their beta program was using what's called S3 buckets, which are X, which are cloud storage, um, which are used for the application itself. Basically, all the resources, the JPEGs, the XMLs, all the pieces of the website were in this S3 bucket, and it was public. It was not behind a network. It was literally on the open internet, and it was all in clear text, including the GitHub repository. The code repository data was in that as well. And then if you look at the if you look at that, you realize that the GitHub repository itself was not locked down. So now you could literally just like scrape the open internet, find this bucket, copy all of the beta program for yourself, change like 30%. Now you have it. Now you have something unique and sell on your own. And then if you didn't like that, you could also walk over to where the code was actually stored, literally look at it from without logging into it, and take the source code too. Wow. <laughs> To so, say the least. To say the least. And, and you think that that's like happening out of just no one knows any better. No one knows any better. And wow. It's just that it comes back that this is why we have champion programs. <laughs> right. Because even if you're not a specialist yourself, it push, put, being in a position where someone relies on you to be eyes and ears, it just instinctually makes you more aware of the situation. If someone says, if I say to, if I say to you that I'm going to trust you to watch my cat, um, you're just going to, by the nature of your humanity, care a little bit more about my cat. My cat's a jerk, by the way. You're not going to like him. He doesn't like you. He doesn't like me. So let's say for argument's sake, you want, I say I'm trusting you to... I'm, you didn't agree even. Let's say you didn't even agree to watch my cat. I'm just trusting you to. Fair. You will. <laughs> yeah. That's human nature. And the motivation is our relationship. Exactly. Not necessarily my relationship with the cat or your relationship with the cat. Honestly, no one should care about that cat. But yes, agreed, because that's the, that's the social contract we live in. And so um, be, being put in a position, in the case of a champion's program, where you are put in a position of trust, even if it's just like a paper tiger level of trust, 
the nature of it produces an awareness which is hard to shake. Right. So something you can't unknow once you're aware of it. Exactly. Uh, okay. Especially if you put it on, on LinkedIn, then everyone knows. Careful with LinkedIn, by the way. Good, good, good target for social engineering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really interesting. Thank you for being our champion today. Yeah. Um, for anyone who might want to learn more about cybersecurity or, or learn more about you, where can they find you? Oh, very few places. Um, but by design. By design. Uh, yeah, no, I think the easiest is going to be to find me on LinkedIn, which is, again, I was just saying, don't do LinkedIn. Here's me doing LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> uh, if you look for if you look for my name, Wes Shepard, or if you just look for uh, the, at the URL finishing with Wes-We-Can, yeah, Wes-We-Can. I don't know why I'm like this, but that was how I decided to put my LinkedIn URL. Um, that's probably the easiest way to reach out to me. Um, I literally will just talk at you about this, whether you ask me or not. I, I'm happy Speaking of talking, I know that you have some conferences coming up. So where can people see you if they want to? Oh, yeah, there is that too. Um, I'm going to be speaking at um, B-Sides in Las Vegas in August. I'll be speaking at the ISC Squared Conference in October in Nashville. If you're in the Toronto area, I'm going to be at the Collision Conference. I believe I'm speaking there on startup security. And I think there's others I'm not remembering. Awesome. Well, we will make sure to plug all of those in the show notes. Um, if you have any other questions for us around cybersecurity, uh, be sure to send them to the show. If you found this topic interesting and you want to learn more, definitely let us know. Um, if you have any feedback, if you have any other questions, um, if you have any other topics you want us to cover, uh, please let us know. And yeah, it has been really interesting diving into this topic with you. And we want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me over. This is fun. Yeah, thank you, Wes. Thanks for listening to Huddle. We appreciate your support and hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to watch along, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. If you're feeling generous, please leave us a review and rating on your favorite platform. Your feedback helps us improve our content and reach more people. Until next time, keep learning, growing, and exploring. Today's show was produced by Meg, Mel, and Cam, with help from Meg, Mel, and Cam. Editing from Cam, music from Half Cool. I'm Meg, thanks for joining the huddle.